Welcome to Episode 9 of Reach and Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLP Louisville, reviewing the essays of American writer and cultural critic Susan Sontag in preparation for her 2020 Pulitzer Prize-winning biography on Episode 10. Good stuff. Stay tuned. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Welcome back to Read and Succeed. We'll be reviewing the literature, life, and legacy of late American novelist, playwright, journalist, activist, cultural critic, and year 2000 winner for the National Book Award for Fiction, Susan Sontag. The next three episodes, starting today with a look in the work and the medium that made her famous, her essays. We'll follow that up on episode 10 with a review of her 2019 biography, Sontag, Her Life and Work, by American writer Benjamin Moser, a text that won him the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for biography earlier this year. Lastly, on episode 11 of Read and Succeed, we'll be reviewing the 2019 text, The Undying, Pain, Vulnerability, Mortality, Medicine, Art, Time, Dreams, Data, Exhaustion, Cancer, and Care by American poet and essayist Anne Boyer, winner of the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, touted as a 21st century version of Miss Sontag's famous monograph, Illness as Metaphor, ironically also published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, and a work that references Sontag's name and legacy in its opening lines. Additionally, Read and Succeed has been granted special permission by the San Francisco Public Library in San Francisco, California, to broadcast a talk that Susan Sontag herself gave there in early 2001, as well as permission by the Leon Levy Center for Biography at the City College of New York's Graduate Center, where Sontag once taught literature, to broadcast a late 2019 interview with her biographer, Benjamin Moser. And finally, on episode 11, Read and Succeed will get back in the business of having in-studio interviews with co-founder of the Louisville-based Before I Die Festival. Mr. Justin Magnuson, discussing illness, the undying, Sontag, and the realities of of end-of-life, both creative and clinical, by an end-of-life professional. The Before I Die Festival is, per the organization's website, a unique series of events that explores the many different ways we can prepare for death and dying, frankly, intelligently, with humor, compassion, and intent. Learn more about the Before I Die Festival at BeforeIDieLou.com, that's L-O-U. Learn more about the San Francisco Public Library at SFPL.org. Learn more about the Leon Levy Center for Biography at llcb.ws.gc.cuny.edu. Learn more about the late Susan Sontag at the Susan Sontag Foundation's website at susansontag.com. Our sincerest thanks to all of these prestigious organizations. And don't forget to learn more about Read and Succeed at readandsucceed.net. There you can follow the links to our social media sites, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube, and tune in to listen to us on 106.5 FM WFMPLP in the downtown Louisville area on Forward Radio at 5 p.m. on Wednesdays, 1 p.m. on Thursdays, and 8 a.m. on Fridays, all Eastern Standard Time. Visit forwardradio.org to download all archived episodes of Read and Succeed via SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play to see information on the station's broadcast schedule or to make a much-needed and appreciated donation to Community Radio. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. American intellectual and writer Susan Sontag was born Susan Rosenblatt to Jack and Mildred Rosenblatt on January 16, 1933 in New York City, New York. The Rosenblatt family were Jewish, of Lithuanian and Polish descent, but decidedly secular in nature. 
Susan later proclaimed that she did not even enter a synagogue until well into her mid-twenties. Susan's father, Jack, ran a fur import business in China, where he later contracted and died from tuberculosis in 1939 when Susan was only five years old, potentially influencing her lifelong fascination with illness and dying, and her mother remarried U.S. Army Captain Nathan Sontag seven years later when Susan was 12, whose surname she carried throughout the entirety of her life and career. Soon after her mother remarried, Susan and her sister relocated with their stepfather and mother, with whom Susan only had a distant relationship at best, from greater New York City to Tucson, Arizona, and later to the San Fernando Valley in Southern California, where the book of Susan, already showing the intellectual prowess that would later define her career, graduated from North Hollywood High School at age 15, and almost immediately started undergraduate studies at the University of California. Mid-degree, she transferred to the University of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois in the early 1950s, then in the midst of its famed teacher-proof core curriculum, based in a comprehensive reading of the Western literary canon from Homer to Hemingway, being developed by UFC President Robert Hutchins and famed American educator and philosopher Mortimer Alder. Look no farther than their brainchild, the renowned 54-volume Great Books of the Western World series at your local public library, to not only understand their intellectual legacy, but the depth and breadth of learning and letters that UFC graduates such as Susan Sontag brought to bear on American culture in the mid to late 20th century. Susan, immersing herself in both ancient and modern works of philosophy, history, and literature, graduated from the University of Chicago with highest honors at age 18 in 1951, at a time when most American women were graduating from high school, getting married, and entering the domestic sphere. Susan, albeit only partially, was subject to these same social conventions, and married author Philip Reef, a UFC sociology professor during her undergraduate studies, after only a 10-day courtship, a display of the vintage impulse and obsessive abandonment that Sontag would later apply to her literary and journalism projects, and in direct contradiction to her already emerging but then still inarticulable identity as an LGBT person. Their marriage lasted eight years, produced a son, David Reef, who would later go on to be Susan's editor during her formative years with publishing house Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud, and also produced Sontag's first literary work, Freud, The Mind of a Moralist, co-written with her husband before their divorce in 1958, and embodying the elegant, intellectually intense monograph essay style for which she is now known around the entire world, all the while simultaneously completing a Master of Arts in English and a Master of Arts in Philosophy from no less than Harvard University. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Coinciding with the publishing of her first work and her divorce at age 25, Sontag traveled alone to St. Anne's College at Oxford University in Oxford, England, on an American Association of University Women's Fellowship before transferring to the University of Paris in Paris, France, socializing with an expatriate community of artists and academics, including fellow University of Chicago alumni and fellow Jewish LGBT philosopher Alan Bloom, whose controversial 1987 text, The Closing of the American Mind, How Higher Education Has Failed Democracy and Impoverished the Souls of Today's Students, earned him one of the strangest collections of friends and enemies in American intellectual history and very much operated in the vein of high intellect and high culture as a method of social defiance in the face of the late 20th century decline of American public intellectualism, or at least transformation into political tribalism, that we observe in American society today, and a protest that is similarly echoed in almost all of Susan Sontag's works. Of equal significance during Susan's time in Paris, a period that she later recounted as being one of the most important in her personal and professional life, was a public acknowledgement of her own bisexuality, with the beginning of a relationship with Cuban-American avant-garde playwright and theater director Maria Irene Fornes, whom Sontag relocated to New York City and cohabitated with for seven years, starting in 1959. 
Beginning in the early 1960s, while still living with Fornes, Susan Sontag entered what this reviewer considers the early period of her literary career, extending two decades to the early 1980s, a period that, despite Sontag's lifelong self-identification as a fictional novelist and dramatist, crystallized the nonfiction, monograph, and essay format based mostly in cultural, artistic, and literary criticism for which she is most widely read. Few, if any, readers, even in the most committed intellectual circles, can name any of Susan Sontag's novels or plays. Most, if not all, general readers hear at least some proverbial literary bell ringing when they hear the title, Illness as Metaphor, even if they have never turned one page of that text. Ironically, it was Sontag's short story format developed while teaching at various colleges in and around New York City in preparation for her first and second, both now largely forgotten, experimental novels The Benefactor in 1963 and Death Kid in 1967, and freelance critical essays for the then inaugural pages of the New York Review of Books, founded during that same period, that converged to create what is still considered by some to be Sontag's best work, a 1966 collection of essays on literary and artistic criticism entitled Against Interpretation. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Before I go any further, let me state clearly this reviewer's critical analysis of Against Interpretation. The writing is absolutely superb. Almost flawless. Even if you don't agree with all of Ms. Sontag's conclusions or motivations for the essays in this collection, and this reviewer potentially does not, if you are a student of the written word, you cannot help but be mesmerized by the logic, the lucidity, and the overall literary mastery of what you are reading. The common theme in the individual essays, its eponymous title essay, and the overall collection of Against Interpretation is both simple and complex, a challenge to the modern mind to stop interpreting art, any art, through their own formal, intellectually constructed, more often than not intellectually borrowed, lenses of what constitutes form and style and content in school, etc., and to simply let art, any art, relay its spiritual, transcendental, almost sensual energies directly to the audience, intellectually unencumbered. In short, let the art speak for and interpret itself. Interpretation, in quotations, or at least the mid-20th century aesthetic formalism rampant in most academic and artistic circles at the time, was, as Sontag put it, the intellect's revenge upon art, with the process of interpretation, still in quotations, disrupting what should be an otherwise uninterrupted, primal, creative, almost magical relationship between the art and the audience themselves. Or still, modern interpretation per Sontag actually creates a pre-creative hesitation in the creative process of the artist. Sontag blames this tangible issue on a variety of intangible things, not least of which was the 20th century Western tendency towards over and mass production, towards sensory excess, and the correspondent dulling of man's physical and metaphysical senses to the point where modern sensory overload had actually led to modern sensory loss. With little or no senses left, to truly respond to what remaining aspects of a work of art can penetrate the audience's own preconstructed interpretations. As a counterbalance of sorts, a return to art's purest roots, Sontag elevates one of the 20th century's most unapologetically sensory forms of art, and one closely associated with the modern British and American LGBT community that Susan was, by the time of the publishing of Against Interpretation, openly a member. That art form is called Camp. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Camp is, under any artistic criticism, hard to define. In its broadest definition, camp is art that is appealing and in high taste simply because it was created to be unappealing and in bad taste. This is not to be confused with art that is kitsch or kitschy, more colloquially called cheese or cheesy. That art is, in the mind of many unfortunate artists at least, created to be taken seriously, but ultimately it is not. Created to be deep, but ends up being on the shallow end of the pool created to display the artist's emotional and artistic intelligence, but ultimately displays something a tad less, created to be high art but comes in a little lower than expected. 
Camp, on the other hand, as artistic or social practice is bad by intention, is lowbrow by design, but requires a high level of artistic skill to make itself appear quite the artistic opposite. And as such, and by virtue of its turning modernist conceptions of art on their academic and interpretive heads, should be considered both good and high art in and of itself. Camp is art that is so bad it is actually good. Camp has been around since the beginning of human art itself. Anywhere where, quote, frivolity, naive middle-class pretentiousness, and shocking excess, end quote, were intentionally practiced, according to Sontag. But modern conceptions, or at least those conceptions more closely associated with modern LGBT culture, have their roots in a late 19th and early 20th century cosmopolitan fusion of theater, French cabaret, English pantomime, and American film, best represented by Irish poet and playwright Oscar Wilde on the lighter end of the spectrum, and another four-letter word associated with, quote, frivolity naive middle-class pretentiousness and shocking excess, end quote, on the other end of the spectrum, that being the performance art commonly known as drag. At any rate, per Sontag's essay, Notes on Camp, the art form defies modern interpretation, and her discussion thereon rounds out an essay collection that is essentially an artistic criticism of artistic criticism itself, and one that landed Sontag as a finalist for the then Arts and Letters category of the 1967 National Book Award, and one that kept Sontag almost synonymously associated with the monograph and book essay format well until the end of her life and career and beyond. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Following the publication of Against Interpretation in 1966 and the end of her relationship with Maria Irene Fornes, Sontag transitioned from experimental novel ambitions to screenplay ambitions, writing scripts for a series of German art house films, still largely unknown, and transitioned from her reasonably long-term live-in relationship with Fornes to short, transitory, bisexual relationships with the menagerie of Italian aristocrats, German academics, American literary and artistic luminaries, and a Rothschild banking Harris turned actress to boot for well over most of the next two decades, all the while continuing to produce what no less than the New York Times called the most valuable intellectual documents of the late 20th century. Next published was her second essay collection entitled Styles of Radical Will in 1969, a vast, eclectic, brilliant work of criticism applied to cinema, politics, literature, and even pornography, albeit also literary, followed by a near-decade-long creative gestation in the 1970s that eventually produced somewhat less forgettable fiction by Sontag in a collection of short stories entitled I, Etc. in 1977, two utterly unforgettable book-length essay monographs in On Photography that same year, a breathtaking reflection on American photography and photojournalism, and their potential, now confirmed, lean from storytelling to voyeurism, a six-star out of five-star prose work in this reviewer's eyes, and the permanently culture and language-altering illnesses metaphor, as well as her third essay collection under the sign of Saturn, published in 1980, a thoroughly Eurocentric meditation on modern art in collaboration with the New York Review of Books, for which Sterling Professor of English at Yale David Bromwich, then writing for the New York Times, wrote, Sontag appears at times to do the keeping up for a whole generation. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Of all these works at the end of Susan Sontag's early period, and of most significance to not only our Read and Succeed exploration of Sontag, but also to American society at large, was her 1978 Illnesses Metaphor, a work that not only sought to analyze the relationship between illness and culture, but also the relationship between how a culture uses language about illness and how that use of language, be it specific or general, shapes a culture's response to illness. And the illness that is the primary focus of that monograph is cancer. Of historical importance is to note that at the time Illness's Metaphor was being written in Sontag's early 40s, she herself was suffering from stage 4 breast cancer first diagnosed in 1975, an illness that none of her doctors believed she would survive, for which she sought out aggressive chemotherapy treatments and actually did survive, and an experience that left her both literally and literarily altered for the rest of her life and career. 
Sontag was well aware of the social mores and denials at the time that described cancer as a quote-unquote long illness instead of naming it outright. Even in some healthcare systems, notifying the family instead of the patient of the diagnosis and allowing them to be the bearers of bad news if they saw fit. But all the while, society was also openly willing to use this same illness as a metaphor for all the social and political ills of the world. Something being a, quote, cancer to society or a negative emotion, quote, growing like a cancer inside of them, etc. Sontag, an eloquent and poetic writer par excellence, argues in illness's metaphor that the last thing illness, those suffering from illness, and society trying to come to terms with an illness need is nothing other than the most inelegant, unpoetic, clear, technical, rational medical language available. The use of named illnesses as common, imaginative, almost romantic metaphors by society for non-medical issues gives the actual illness itself almost religious mystery cult properties and, per Sontag, actually has an isolating, destructive internal effect on the patient being treated. Sontag never wanted to be shaken by much of any anything, journals as she lay in her hospital bed reflecting on the breast cancer growing within her. I have become afraid of my own imagination. By rejecting the use of illness as a metaphor in public and political discourse, by separating our use of language about illness from language's inherently literary impulses, Sontag argues our fear of illness in the future, and in Sontag's case her fear of her own imagination, and the barriers within public and private health care these fears collectively enable will be reduced. Illness as Metaphor, however, was written over the course of the 1970s, was published in 1978, and drew on historical analysis of American metaphors about illness that, at the time it was written, was only capable of finding parallels between 20th century American language symbols about cancer and 19th century American language symbols about the disease known as tuberculosis. In both cases, a social use of easily psychologically and socially digestible literary metaphors in and around these illnesses eventually led to a social assigning of the presence of the illness in the individual is having its root the psychological condition of the patient. In the case of tuberculosis, it being associated with individual laziness and poverty. In the case of cancer, it, often still, being associated with poor individual lifestyle choices and both assumptions resulting in sometimes latent shame and silent structures in society that only makes the patient's potential recovery from these illnesses that much more demanding. As Sontag moved into her middle period in the 1980s, however, and formed an even closer public and artistic relationship with the causes and creativity of the American LGBT community, in preparation for her somewhat camp-inspired 1992 historical novel, The Volcano Lover, she, along with the rest of American society, soon had to intellectually contend with managing the intrinsically and often inaccurately moral assignment of language and metaphor to an illness that started off as a geographically concentrated pattern of rare sarcomas and pneumonias in small communities of gay men on the West coast in the United States in 1981 and soon turned into a national epidemic affecting over a million Americans to this present day. That disease being HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Unlike our 1978 monograph, Illnesses Metaphor, which leaned literary at nearly every turn, her 1989 follow-up monograph, AIDS and Its Metaphors, leans sociological at nearly every turn, and in many ways represents an excellent example of what current scholarship calls late 20th century postmodern critical theory, a constellation of academic disciplines having their roots in literary analysis that attempt to dissect language symbolism and their influence on late 20th and early 21st century social and political discourse as potential pillars that perpetuate social injustice. The 20th century long transition of the term Negro to Black to African American to the more recent person of color when discussing American populations of African descent, the replacement of the American colonial term Indian with indigenous peoples when talking about Native American peoples, 
or even the replacement of mental retardation with intellectual disability to describe those with neurodevelopmental disorders are all real-world examples of where a change in popular language symbolism coincided with the resultant change in social status and awareness, in some cases increased social agency. In AIDS and its metaphors, no example of anyone using HIV or AIDS as a metaphor itself, for example, this is an AIDS to society, is identified. But the U.S. social and political hysteria that followed the early 1980s HIV outbreak, best captured in the 1987 text and the band played on, Politics, People, and the AIDS Epidemic by late San Francisco Chronicle journalist Randy Schiltz, was, according to Sontag, based in already pre-existing metaphors related to illness that were already at work in the American mind since at least the mid-19th century. Similar to tuberculosis, AIDS was a divine plague and judgment, an extension of the patient's moral laxity and poverty, and fundamentally the patient's own fault. Similar to cancer in the mid-20th century, as captured in Sontag's original illnesses metaphor, AIDS was the new long illness, not to be talked about in public, fundamentally an extension of the patient's lifestyle choices, where social silence and or stigma on the matter rocked the social boat the least, often without any input from the patient on the matter themselves. AIDS and its metaphors was followed immediately by the intentionally iconoclastic short story collection and play entitled The Way We Live Now in 1990 and 1991, showing the AIDS epidemic cutting through New York City's cultural and majority heterosexual elite versus the by then metaphorical, no pun, middle class LGBT neighborhood in San Francisco, California. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Following a period of productive retreat through most of the 1990s, as she did in the 1970s, albeit this time in a self-assignment as a freelance war correspondent in war-torn Sarajevo, and a new long-term live-in relationship with American portrait photographer Annie Leibovitz that in some ways mirrored her relationship with Maria Irene Fornes two decades earlier, Sontag entered her late and final period in 1999 with the publication of the novel In America, a spiritually autobiographical, Willa Cather-inspired novel in the historical genre of the volcano lover, about the true story of Polish Shakespearean stage actress Helena Majewska's immigration to California in the 1870s and her eventual ascendancy into a pre-Hollywood level of artistic and cultural superstardom. The text was not without some criticism, but still capped off Sontag's career with the year 2000 National Book Award for Fiction and the fictional literary legitimacy she sought for with writing in the first place. Her essays, however, flawless or near-flawless to the very end, had the final literary say, with her last eclectic collection, Where the Stress Falls, being published in 2001, and the final convergence of all her nonfiction in the essay monograph regarding the pain of others in 2003, tying together the themes of on photography and illness as metaphor, analyzing the relationship between photographic images of pain, in Sontag's case her photojournalism during the siege of Sarajevo, as the new metaphor for illness, and how modern images of pain influence society's own understandings of and responses to pain for the better or worse. Her conclusion was, vintage Sontag, more questions than answers. Artistic and aesthetic hope mixed with clinical black and white reality. Sontag died at age 71 in New York City in late December of 2004 from complications due to leukemia and was buried by her son in the place where she found both creative beginning and ultimately her creative end, Paris, France. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Next, we're going to play a talk that Susan Sontag gave at the San Francisco Public Library in May of 2001 entitled The Writing Life that coincided with her winning of the 2000 National Book Award for Fiction for her novel In America. Wonderful talk from the author herself, and she very much talks like she writes, lucidly, logically, very eloquently. I also want you to pay close attention to the last question that she fields from an audience member at the end of the talk, where someone asked her to summarize her earliest major work, the 1966 essay collection, Against Interpretation. And she just snaps at him for what she perceives as him not reading the text to begin with and asking her to talk in sound bites. Uh, audibly tense moment. And we'll use that incident as a demarcation point transitioning to the next episode of Read and Succeed, reviewing her 2019 biography and the winner of the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Biography, Sontag, Her Life and Work by Benjamin Moser. We'll try and investigate exactly where that pressure point in her life originated. Again, special thanks to the San Francisco Public Library for allowing us to broadcast this content. You can learn more about the San Francisco Public Library at sfpl.org. You can learn more about Susan Sontag at the Susan Sontag Foundation's website at susansontag.com and enjoy. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. All right, I'm just say a few words. I Maybe I think the format is to have some kind of exchange or question and answer, so I will just say a few words about writing. To paraphrase something that Oscar Wilde said about art, when I think about writing, I think that writing is something of which could be said that anything you say is true about it and the opposite of anything you say about it is also true. But obviously, one does write out of a certain temperament. And I find that the word temperament, if I'm asked to explain what I do or what kind of choices I make, I'm much more interested in exploring that idea that there are certain temperaments which are perhaps more suited to becoming writers. Talent is, there's a lot of talent around. Talent is not uncommon. What is uncommon is a certain kind of temperament, a certain kind of obsession. Lots of people have talent, especially when they're young, and why some people become writers or artists of different kinds, I think really has much more to do with character than anything else, and with certain kinds of choices that you are impelled to make in your life. For instance, in the case of being a writer, unlike being an actor, you have to have a high tolerance for solitude because uh, being a writer involves being alone a lot. And some people like that, and some people find that quite intolerable, and indeed are drawn to, I'm speaking of people with an artistic vocation, to forms of art making which are more collaborative and have that reward of being with people and often very passionate uh, relationships. The performing arts are, of course, all like that. I have been a, a published writer for close to 40 years now, and I wasn't precocious, actually. I mean, my first book, I was 30 when I published my first book. Of course, I'd been writing before. I'd been writing since I was seven, and I had published a few things, stories and some book reviews, you know, starting in my teens. But I think I actually started to do big work, ambitious work, rather late. It took me a while to get up the nerve and feel that I could do it, to have the confidence that I was doing something that I could like or I could respect or I could admire. And that was the criterion. I've written four novels and a lot of stories. There's already a collection of stories. There will soon be a, another collection. 
a lot of essays, various nonfiction prose texts. I've written plays. I've written film scripts, which I have then directed. I have all this different kind of activity. And I'm here to tell you that after close to 40 years of professional activity, it doesn't get any easier. In fact, it gets harder. And again, I can only speak for myself, but I can't imagine I'm the only person like this. Again, it's my temperament I'm speaking from. Unlike a lot of other, well, this is an artisanal solo activity writing in an age of machine-made mass productions, but it doesn't have the benefit of most other artisanal or handcrafted activities like carpentry or bricklaying or surgery in that there is some kind of skill that you develop and some things become, I don't want to say automatic, that's too negative, but they're sort of in your hand, they're in your mind, and you don't sort of sweat over the execution of each step of this process. Somebody who performs an operation, I, I mentioned surgeon, I would go from bricklaying to surgery because after all these still are hand activities. I think someone who has performed a complex operation a hundred times is obviously not experiencing the same kind of tension. I don't say one is completely relaxed, but there is a certain thing that is built up through experience that it gives you a feeling of proficiency or mastery or whatever. This is just common sense. I want to say that for me, and I do believe this has to be true for, I'm not the only writer to feel this, but I can only speak for myself. For me, it's, if anything, the opposite. I've, I am experiencing that it is a lot harder to go on writing because I'm more self-conscious than ever. That doesn't mean I believe that you will see that reading what I do. The idea is that all those traces of self-consciousness, of course, have to be eliminated in the final version of whatever I write. But for me, writing is very much rewriting. I find that as I go on, I am setting the bar higher. Perhaps that's what accounts for the fact that it seems harder. Things that I would have been satisfied to do 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I'm not satisfied to do now. In other words, perhaps all I'm doing is confessing to the very American idea that I should improve or get better as a writer, not simply go along with a certain degree of mastery or proficiency, which I may have had from the beginning or at any rate early on. And I actually do think that I'm a better writer than I used to be. And not just because it seems harder, it is harder, but I, I think I know more. But because I know more, then it often feels as if every sentence is a crossroads, a fork in the road at any rate. Obviously, I mean with respect to writing as an art, with respect to writing as part of that enterprise called literature. There are all kinds of service writing, writing devoted to information or the expression of opinion, in which I don't think these sorts of scruples have to apply. And I do do a little bit of that too, even now if there's certain causes where I feel I'm competent to speak and I might write a short text which I'm expressing some view or insight or principle or whatever, that is not difficult. If anything, that kind of writing, of course, is easier. But the writing that is called literature, the writing that is embodied in the last two novels where I really feel I've been entered a whole new phase as a writer, The Volcano Lover and In America, those are the product of an immense amount 
of reworking, of, if you will, writing by will, writing from conscious ambition to each time I write, surpass and perhaps contradict myself. These are very Emersonian and also remind me, as I hear myself speaking, of a very, very American themes, as Whitman also comes to mind. I contradict myself very well, I contradict myself. But I don't think there's any virtue in contradicting yourself. I just discover that I start thinking something else after I've thought one thing for a very long time. It doesn't appeal to me anymore, and I just start thinking, yes, but it's also something else. So for me, being a writer is finding a greater expressiveness, a greater eloquence, more inner freedom. And you don't do it by directly pursuing those goals, obviously. You just do it by writing, by writing and rewriting and rewriting till you see it's better. It's better by your own standards. Your own standards, of course, have been formed by great literature, the literature of the past. You are not writing for posterity. Uh, uh, Joseph Brodsky used to say something like, you know, you're writing for your predecessors, you're not writing for posterity. You're writing for the people who you most admire, who are, for the most part, dead. They are the great writers of the past. They set your standards, they set your idea of what literature is. It's not that you think you're on that level, but that's the standard by which you measure yourself and by which you know yourself to be still struggling and moving towards something that can always be better than it is. What I'm not doing, and then I come to the more, perhaps more entertaining aspect of this account, what I don't think I'm doing, what I don't want to do, what I don't aspire to do is to express myself. I don't think of writing as psychotherapy. I don't write in order to express myself. I don't write in order to define myself. I don't write in order to find out who I am. I don't write in order to become immortal. All these things may sound amusing to you, but I have heard an awful lot of writers say that, and I've heard an awful lot of readers assuming that writers say that. Many, many years ago, I hope I'm not being indiscreet, but I will be, if that's what it is. <laughs> many years ago, about more than 20, 25 years ago, I was the, in Italy, and I got to know a, a young, youngish, I guess my age, professor of literature in Italy whose name was Umberto Eco. He had not written a word of fiction, and, but he was very clever and amusing. It was fun to know him, and we hung out uh, together for a while, and he said, I'm going to write novels, and I said, oh, great. <laughs> he said, I'm going to write best-selling novels. I've figured out how to do it. And I thought, I thought he was, it was just a case of sort of megalomania, but he had figured out how to do it. <laughs> and I said, well, how did you do that? He said, I've been reading Alexandre Dumas and Eugène Sue, you know, two great bestsellers of the 19th century. I said, and you figured it out? He said, yeah, I know exactly what has to go into a book to make it work. And I said, well, is it so important it be a bestseller? And he said, well, it isn't that. He said, don't think it's about money. Maybe in the end, since it did happen, it was about money. But this is not what he thought, and I believe him. He said, it's about immortality, because I know if the books really are bestsellers, then they'll be in libraries. And 200 years from now, somebody will be sitting in a library reading a novel by me, and that means I'm still alive. And I said, no, you won't. <laughs> no, you're not. No. I had a very plebeian, down-to-earth idea about what it was to be alive and what it was to be dead. Uh, <laughs> And Echo, well, that's work for him. He thought he was gaining immortality. 
Anyway, writers have all sorts of fantasies about what they're doing because we live in an era which a certain kind of psychobabble is very common and people are told all the time to, you know, develop their selves and know themselves and all the rest of it. Then they think that every activity which they performed has to be justified because it's a form of self-expression. Now, I'm not saying, of course, I'm not expressing myself. I mean, I have to. I have only what's inside my head and what I know, whatever wisdom I've gained. Uh, so, of course, I am limited to myself, but it's not about me, and the point is not to do that. I mean, it's, I'm always trying to get in touch with what's not me, and that's what's important, and I'm just the instrument of doing that. And I think that what I make is, as I say, it, I'm the one who makes it. I don't want to say I don't understand that it's not created by me, but its point is not to express me or to convey something about me. These are unfortunate byproducts that, in fact, I am in, in some sense expressing myself because, well, you can't step over your own feet. But I believe very strongly that the purpose of great art is impersonal or transpersonal, and that I am just the servant or the instrument of whatever I can do that is of value. And if there would be any personal aim or purpose, something in this difficulty that is writing, that, that is for me alone, it certainly wouldn't be self-expression, which I think is a very trivial goal or ambition. It would be, hmm, hard to pronounce the words, it would be something like salvation. I think that I in some way transcend myself through writing. I'm precisely not confined to being myself through writing. It's a way of being in touch with and connected with much larger realities, the reality of other people's lives and what writing can do in the way of extending our capacities for sympathy. And it's also about our relationship to the language of which we are just the servant. So, as I say, I don't do it to express myself. I'm making some in the old sense that Aristotle talked about art as poesis, a kind of a making making of an object. And if there is a motive, then it is a motive of respect. I have been transformed. I have been created and transformed and continue to be changed by my relationship to various arts music, uh, painting, film, literature, dance, they all have a great claim on me. Literature is the one that I felt I most called on to work in, but it's also, in a way, an act of gratitude as much as an act of emulation, humility, perhaps, much more than ambition. It comes from being a reader. I think a writer is, first of all, a reader, and my deepest uh, motivation for wanting to be a writer and wanting to be a good writer and wanting to be a better writer is the ecstasy which I have had as a reader. I'll stop there and see if there's someone who wants to ask a question. Thank you. You don't have to have any questions. For those just joining us, this is a talk given by late American author, cultural critic, and year 2000 winner of the National Book Award for Fiction, Susan Sontag, given at the San Francisco Public Library in San Francisco, California in May of 2001. To download this episode of Read and Succeed, please visit readandsucceed.net. In your life as a writer, in your career, 
you've engaged in a lot of huge different projects in theatre, in film, in writing, and you must face a multitude of opportunities and projects and ideas and your own awareness of the needs in the world, the work you engage in for writers and on behalf of causes in the world. So my question is, how do you choose at any given time what to give a certain length of time to? How do you choose one project to focus on for one length of time and manage to focus on it to the exclusion of everything else that demands your attention? Well, that's a very important question. I mean, it's actually the central question of a practical kind that one might ask oneself. I'm not a disciplined person. Again, I have to go back to the, the notion of temperament. There are novelists. Iris Murdoch, the late Iris Murdoch, was supposed to have been one of these who had a fixed writing schedule, let's say from 9 to 5, I'm making it up. If she finished a novel at 3.30 and had an hour and a half left of her daily writing stint, she would start another novel. Uh, I would break and probably not <laughs> go near a writing task for two months. <laughs> I'm quite undisciplined. I work very intensely, sometimes 18, 20 hours a day. And then I, there are weeks and days and weeks that I don't write. So again, the answer I'm about to give you comes from the fact I'm undisciplined. I work by obsession. And a, a disciplined person, a person with a schedule, Lots and lots of writers, uh, most writers actually work on schedules. John Updike, for instance, is supposed to, I don't know, I've never been to his place, so I'm very remotely acquainted with him, but apparently he has three rooms with three different computers, and uh, there's one room for the fiction, one room for the nonfiction, one room for the correspondence. And he has set times that he devotes to every single day, every day of his life, to those three activities. So I start by being undisciplined. and. And again, I don't know why I'm quoting Oscar Wilde for the second time, who said, I can resist everything except temptation. <laughs> uh, uh, things just come along and grab me, and I find myself doing it. It's not a question of principle. I wish it were. Why did I go to Sarajevo? I had absolutely no connection with Sarajevo whatsoever. I'd never been there. I'd never been in Bosnia. I have no family connection with that part of the world, with the Balkans. It meant absolutely nothing to me. I happened to go along. I was invited to go along to accompany uh, the director of a humanitarian organization who was making a quick fact-finding trip one year after the siege uh, started. And I'm a bit of a daredevil. And I thought, ooh, I get to go to a war and risk my life. OK. And I went along. I mean, what the thing that turns some people off attracts me, you know, risking my life is something I have done a number of times. I'm a, a bit adventurous, even at my advanced age still. And uh, I went and I thought, my god, this is the most amazing situation. In a genocide in Europe, death camps, a siege, a good side and a bad side. How often does that come along? And I thought, well, I'm going to come back. I'm going to find work here. I'm going to do things. I'm going to come back. That absolutely, completely screwed up my life for three years. I mean, apart from the danger and difficulty and, well, the toughness of life there. It was, I mean, the bullets were whizzing past your head. There was no glass in the windows. It's a mountain town, cold in the winter. No running water, no heat, no electricity, no et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was very tough. But it was an amazing experience and a great privilege to be welcomed there and be given work to do there. And I didn't do it as a writer. 
I did it as a person. And I dropped everything. I had started in America in January 1993. On April 6, 1993, I went to Sarajevo. I'd written, well, pretty much the first two chapters of In America. I didn't start it again for three years. Now, that was very irrational. Obviously, I'm not going to work in Sarajevo on my novel. I mean, that, you can imagine what it was like to live there in a sort of ditch with you know, explosions going on. War is extremely noisy, <laughs> nonstop noise, except between 3 and 5 in the morning when they are too drunk and stop firing and dropping things in the city. And so why did I do it? I don't know. I, let me, not, let me just put, try to put it in a more complex way. I think my idea of a human life or a good life, talked about literature, I'm very much a product of 19th century Russian literature with all that, those questions that you find in Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Chekhov and all those writers. How, do, how does one live? How should one live? How can one live better? And I think a better life is a life in which you forget about yourself every once in a while and just throw yourself into something which can come along quite adventitiously and it's not about you and it's about doing something for other people. I think that if altruism isn't honored, I don't say everybody can do this and also I don't mean you have to go to a war and risk getting yourself killed. It can be doing any kind of social or public work in your own community, in your own block, in your own workplace. It doesn't involve anything as weird as going halfway around the world to sit and get bombed with people you didn't know before. But I think part of your life should not be about you. It should be about service. It should be about sacrifice. It should be about altruism. And so these things come along. And I don't think of them as causes. I mean, I guess they are, but I never talk about it like that. I just say, well, sometimes something comes along and you just want to do it. And then you have to drop everything and do it. And then you don't do it for a while. And I'm not saying that what happened in Bosnia is the worst single thing that happened you know, in that time. Sometimes it's just an accident. You meet someone who says, come here, come, come down. Look, look what's happening in this prison. Look what's happening in this shelter for battered women. Look what's happening in this school. Look what's happening in this garden. My friend Alice Waters in Berkeley has been doing food programs in Berkeley and Oakland high schools because she thinks that that's something she ought to do, to teach high school kids something about food that isn't processed and frozen and so on. And that's something she wanted to because she cares about people and she cares about the quality of what people eat. And that's an amazing thing that she is doing. I know many, many people who have some component of service. So I really think of it as service, not causes. And I'm very devoted to the idea of not pronouncing in public opinions about things I do not have firsthand knowledge of. You know, writers are very often treated as opinion machines. And you're supposed to, if you're reasonably articulate and you do go out in the world and you're not a recluse, then people are going to ask you about everything, what you think about everything, and you're supposed to have an answer. And I think it cheapens what you do. Of course I have opinions about lots of things, but I hope that I will continue to have the discipline only to express opinions and take part in public actions where it concerns something I have an extensive, deep, first-hand knowledge of and commitment to. And that interrupts writing, and it interrupts your life. 
Your writing interrupts your life. Your art interrupts your life. Your vocation, your passions interrupt your life. Or your life interrupts your vocation, your passions, your writing. <laughs> so I just think maybe, to, again, to answer the question, and I've gone on at such length because it's the thing I most think about, I just think the formula should be more is more. <laughs> that the more you, you can take in, the more you can reach out, the more activities you can engage yourself in, that's better. People have a tendency to close down as they get older. And it's very understandable. They have all kinds of obligations and worries and problems. And a certain kind of depression you know, kicks in where you just say, oh, this is my life. Is that all there is or something like that? But you know, you can change. You can, uh, maybe in heaven, n nothing changes. But here on earth, in order to become better, you have to change a lot. For those just joining us, this is a talk given by late American author, cultural critic, and year 2000 winner of the National Book Award for Fiction, Susan Sontag, given at the San Francisco Public Library in San Francisco, California in May of 2001. To download this episode of Read and Succeed, please visit readandsucceed.net. If I might ask you, in your prologue chapter to this book, could you explain just a few words about that chapter and how you established the point of view and the multi-layer kind of concept that you seem to be expressing there? Well, the novel in America is framed by two monologues. And I, first, I, long after I finished it, well, not, not long, a while after I finished it, I thought it's really like uh, the masks of ancient theater with the comic mask and the tragic mask. So the first, the prologue chapter, what I call zero, there's an alter ego me. It's not me. I kind of, it's a caricature of me, actually. I don't really identify with that voice, but it borrows some things from my life. And the, this, this person, living at the end of the 20th century, is, becomes a time traveler and suddenly drops in on a party on a late December night in the city of Krakow, late December 1876. And a lot of people are moving about. It's late in the evening, and there's one woman in the center that everybody seems to be paying attention to. And the voice starts speculating, well, where am I and who, who is that and who are these people? So it was a kind of one of those ideas that work. You know, you get in the middle of the night and you say, ah, I know how to begin the book. I'm going to begin it with a kind of parable, which is both a description of how you make up a story, what imagination is, and the beginning of the story. I want to draw the reader in. These people are all talking about something that they're going to do, that some of them are going to do. And the other people disapprove. And what can that be? Well, it turns out, of course, it's the project of the actress giving up her career and going to America, going to America to live in a farm, to found a commune, what we would call a commune. And people think it's crazy. Why in the world would she do that? But you're not told this straight out. The voice, the fly on the wall, the time traveler is eavesdropping, as it were. And even says, I don't understand how I can understand this language, the language I don't know, the language, of course, being Polish though occasionally they drop into French, which educated people did in Slavic, in Poland and in Russia at that time. Uh, they all knew French. What, well, the point of it, uh, how it came to me, it came to me in a flash like everything. You know, you just, you have an idea and it comes to you in one minute and then you, there goes the next six years of your life, you know, working it out. So it came to me as, an, as just an idea, but I really liked it because I thought it's like a play well, actually, it's like a movie. It's almost like a movie, I think of it. And this person is watching and thinking. So it's a parable about how you make fiction. And another way I thought of it is this, this voice, this, this invisible 
time traveler who's dropped into the party is auditioning for the novel, the novel that you're about to read, saying, well, I wonder who that is. Maybe that's her husband. Yep, I'm sure that's her husband. And who's that child, that sort of unhappy-looking child sleeping in a chair over there? I bet that's her child. Actresses are always lousy mothers. And, you know, and then you see the stories start to build. And then on the other end, of course, is the Booth uh, monologue. I can't write until I find the form. Uh, there are a lot of people who write novels, and I think it's wonderful if you can do this. They just take their little rowboat out into the ocean and keep on rowing, and it, you know, they get someplace, someplace sometimes terrific. I have to know where I'm going. I have to have a plan. I have to have an idea of how many chapters there are. I have to have an idea of the structure. I have to know the story. I often I know the title. I know the first sentence. I know the last sentence. I know who I'm de the dedication. I have to have a lot of stuff, more like kind of architect plans before I, I, I'm not going to just build a kitchen and wonder where the bedroom is going and where the living room might be and, you know, I, I, I have to see it. It's, I, the volcano lover had a very specific kind of structure. This is a very different kind of structure. I would never use this structure again. It seemed the right structure for this material. You have to find the form. I have to find the form before I can begin the book. And, the, and, and form is form in a very literal sense, the structure the way the book is organized. And it was organized as the central narrative goes over 76, 1876, 1888, and the two framing monologues. One or two more questions. For those just joining us, this is a talk given by late American author, cultural critic, and year 2000 winner of the National Book Award for Fiction, Susan Sontag, given at the San Francisco Public Library in San Francisco, California, in May of 2001. To download this episode of Read and Succeed, please visit readandsucceed.net. I'm curious about the connection between Sarajevo and this book. First of all, that it's dedicated to the friends in Sarajevo. And just after you started the book, you took th three years and went to Sarajevo and come back. It seems like it probably wasn't the same book that you started out to write. So, you know, how did the, the staying in Well, Sarajevo oddly enough, it was. <laughs> it was. I really, the, my terror was that I would never, that I, that I would lose the book. But I really wanted to write the book I had thought of before I went to Sarajevo. And why do I dedicate the book to my friends in Sarajevo? It's just a way of ringing the Sarajevo bell and reminding people of what happened there not so long ago. But it wasn't influenced. I'm very slow. <laughs> I'm slow to process things. I, I, I'm not even ready to write about Sarajevo yet. I, um, I've recently been very ill. I've been a cancer patient again after an interval of more than 20 years. And that's quite an interesting experience, I mean, apart from the horror of it, which is just how different it is to be a patient now than, than in the late 70s. Medicine has really changed. And the, the way in which one is a patient has really changed. And attitudes toward cancer have really changed, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, well, I, you know, I, this is something I should share with people because it's useful. And I feel very evangelical about this, I, I, particularly about cancer, which for so long has been a very stigmatized illness and not one that, that uh, one talks about. I remember when I was a cancer patient for the first time, I have to say, <laughs> smiling. This is not a metastasis, it's a new primary cancer. When I was a cancer patient the first time in the late 70s, and I remember running into an old acquaintance of mine in an airport, and I was very, very ill then. I was supposed to be stage four, I was supposed to be dying. and I granted to this friend who I hadn't, I hadn't seen since I became ill, but who had heard that I was ill, and he said, how are you? And I said, well, apart from the fact that I have cancer, I'm feeling great. And I thought he was going to faint. He was so horrified by my levity and by the fact that I could just say the word. 
Because in those days, and those of you who are older will remember, it was, even the word cancer was not often used. People talked about a long illness or the big C or she has, you know, and that kind of thing. Of course, that's changed. And I'm a tiny bit responsible for that change because of a book that I wrote then, a little, little tiny book called Illness as Metaphor. And then I'm thinking, well, what about Sarajevo? What about being ill again? I'm in, I'm in remission. These are big experiences. I have something to share. I'm very eager to share things that will be morally and psychologically useful to people in the form of literature, needless to say. It's not a pamphlet. It's not journalism. But am I ready yet? It could take years more. I don't know. I don't know. It has to, I have to write from a deep place. I had been thinking about actors all my life. That's what goes into in America. I couldn't write this book if I hadn't lived a lot of my life among actors. I know many, many actors, many directors. I know more actors and directors than I do writers. And I'm very familiar with the menta that mentality, that psychology, the way they think. I'm also attracted to theater people, to performers. I'm fascinated by them. And, and, uh, and I've thought about it. I've just thought about it, I don't mean in some intellectual way. I've just taken it in over many, many years. So that now I, when it came to write this book, I knew I could portray in real depth, complexity, three-dimensionality, a certain temperament of a certain kind of actor. And I've been told this by many of my actor friends. Oh, that's, that's me. That's me. And people quite different. They all think it's them. <laughs> and I think that's great. That's wonderful. I mean, that means that I really did it. But it has to, I think it's very important to digest these things. You, yes. Uh, against interpretation has been mentioned once tonight. And I was talking about it with a friend of mine the other day. And we were kind of trying to remember really what that book was directed at. It, it has a rather polemical title. Could you sort of recall what you were doing there, and how does that look to you now today, so many years later? Well, I think you're speaking as someone who hasn't read the book or doesn't remember it, and I don't think that I should be. Yeah, well, I don't feel that I have to give sound bites uh, describing my work. No, I can't do that. I, can't, I cannot sum up my work in a sound bite. It, it, it is there to be read, and, and that's what I thought is in the book. Okay, but I can't sum it up. I can't, I can't tell you what I was doing. It's, I don't think that way. I, it, I wasn't doing one thing. It's a lot of different different essays with different themes, different passions. Uh, I, I think it's kind of clear if you read it, if you, if you care to read it, what it was about. It's, it's early work. I wouldn't do that now, but I think most of it's quite good. Thank you very much. That's it for episode nine of Read and Succeed. We'll pick up next episode with Susan Sontag's 2020 Pulitzer Prize winning biography by Benjamin Molser and then get a Read and Succeed guest back in studio. Good stuff on the schedule. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>